Lord and Grace Community Church. As Ryan said earlier, my name is Jill Barnes, if you do not know me. I'm a missionary sent out by Grace Community Church. My wife, Laurel, is sitting there in the back on the left hand side with the children, Joseph and Anna. And I'd just like to say to you, if you're a new member of Grace and you have not had a chance to meet us yet, please, after the worship, come and get to know us. That's one of the reasons for which we're here is to update the church and then meet new members and just get to know you guys and strengthen our relationship with you. Um, one thing I would like to say to you before we open up God's Word is it's my privilege and joy to teach you the scripture this morning. But the reason why, the reason why I've, I've had the opportunity to preach in a few places since we've been home, and it's special to me this morning because this is the church that shaped me as a church planner. There's many things that shaped me and formed me, like my family and specific brothers and sisters, but it's this church that taught me what does a local church look like. And I'll tell you this, if you're aspiring to be a missionary, you can read every book under the sun about missions, but until you get in the kitchen and bake something, you don't know what it smells like. And this, this is a church that can show someone what a healthy biblical church looks like. So, you guys, through my family and the Chavez family, are shaping and molding the church in Puna Peru. So if you would, open the scriptures with me to Genesis chapter 12. And if you would, stand with me for the reading of God's word. This morning we're going to be in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Genesis chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kingdom and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is God's word, brothers and sisters. You can take a seat. I want to begin this morning by asking you all a familiar question, one that most of you probably know. It's the most well-known catechism question that there is. It is, what is the chief end of man? You all know the answer. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. But I want to put a twist on that question this morning to help you understand the main purpose of our text. What is the chief end of Abraham? The chief end of Abraham is that the nations, is that the nations glorify God and enjoy Him forever. My Grace Community Church, we're going to consider a lot of things in this passage. There's a lot of details that pan out. But I want you to know that that's where this passage is going this morning. That's where the plane is, the plane is going to land. We're going to see that the main purpose of Abraham is that Jesus Christ go to the nations. Well, before we do that, I think it's necessary that we see the importance of Abraham. And Abraham's a pretty important person to the world. Everybody here, I imagine everyone in your life has heard, at least heard, of the name Abraham. Three of the world's major religions are founded on the person of Abraham. Islam, 
Judaism to Christianity, we unapologetically say which one's right. It's true. But more than that, Abraham is extremely important to the Christian religion and to the scriptures themselves. I want you to hear what James Montgomery Boyce says about Abraham regarding his importance to the scriptures. He says, apart from Jesus Christ, Abraham is probably the most important person in the Bible. And I agree. And you might say, Joe, what about David? David's pretty important. What about Paul? He wrote more than half of the New Testament, or he wrote the majority of the New Testament. Aren't they pretty important? And I would say yes. But Abraham does play a very special role in the scriptures and in our faith. And I would say yes, he is the most important person in the Bible. Jesus Christ. But why? Why is he so important? I want to give you two reasons why it's important before we get in our text this morning. First, the life of Abraham is crucial in order to understand the New Testament and to have a deeper understanding of the Christian faith. In other words, apart from Abraham, there's no way you're going to store, you're going to understand the New Testament. There's no way you're going to understand the, the Christian faith. He's mentioned around 72 times. Galatians. You can't understand the book of Galatians apart from Abraham. Romans chapter 4 is all about Abraham. And Paul himself bases his argument for justification by faith alone on the life of Abraham. Martin Luther said it's by that doctrine that the church will stand with Paul. So he's pretty important to the New Testament and to your faith. Secondly, the life of Abraham is necessary to understand in order to know and understand the story of the Bible as a whole. So, Genesis is the foundation of all the scriptures, right? Everything comes out of, developed out of Genesis. But Abraham is the main character in Genesis. So the entire Bible develops from Abraham. It'd be like fast forwarding 15 minutes into a movie and it didn't play. So if you don't know the, the, the life of Abraham and understand his purpose, you can't understand the story of the Bible. And you need to understand where it sits in the book of Genesis. We're about to just jump in to chapter 12. So where does Abraham's story fit in the context of Genesis? You have chapters 1 through 11. You have the downward spiral of sin. The fall of man, and then you get worse and worse and worse. You have brothers killing the brothers. You have men abusing women and having more than one wife. And then God Floods the whole, whole earth in judgment. So you've got this downward spiral of sin in Genesis 1 through 11, and then you come to chapter 12. And this is where the story actually changes. You go from a story of hopelessness to a story of hope. And it all happens, it all changes in the life of Abraham. So the rest of Genesis is where the story begins to change. It's where God shows his plan to snatch mankind out of this downward spiral of sin. So brothers and sisters, we're going to get into our text now. Our first point this morning is God's call, or the call of God. I'm going to read verse 1 again with you. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, and your kingdom, and your father's house, to the land that I will show you. So in this call, I'm going to divide it into two parts. And I want to use two words here in verse 1. The word from and the word to. So we're going to see what God has called Abraham from or out of, and what God has called Abraham to. 
So where does God call Abraham from? And first, God calls Abraham to abandon his country. The most commentator, when they explain the Hebrew here, said that this is an urgent call. The word go here is one with urgency. So we're going to see why it's so urgent that he leave his land. So, where is Abraham actually? It's the land of Ur, which is in Mesopotamia, which is modern-day Iraq. And it's important to understand a couple of things about Mesopotamia if we're going to understand Abraham's call. So, what's the significance of Ur, of Chaldeans? What we need to understand is that this land was a land full of idol worship. It was full of idol worship. And God's not just calling Abraham to move geographical locations. He's calling Abraham to serve him rather than these idols. So listen to what uh, we see in Joshua chapter 24, 2-3 about Abraham. It says this, And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates. Terah, the father of Abraham and of Naor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land through all the land of Canaan. So a lot of scholars, what they will show you through the study of artifacts is that there was a man named Ur Nami who started this city or started this civilization. And he built this tower, a ziggurat tower, and it was similar to the tower that was in Babylon. It just tells you something about who they are. But it seems like he dedicates this tower to a moon goddess named Nana. Okay? So what does this tell us? It tells us that Abraham was a part of a pagan culture that worshipped the moon. And something that's even more interesting is that Abraham's father, Terah, his name is related to the lunar calendar. Terah, so some scholars believe that Terah even names his daughters in relation to his moon goddess. But what does this tell us about Abraham? It tells us that Abraham was just steeped in pagan idolatry. That Abraham was exactly what Paul had written about in Romans 1, where men exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They worshiped the creature, why not the creator? This is all that Abraham knows is moon worship and idolatry. But more than that, God doesn't only call him out of this land. doesn't just call him away from this land. He calls him to leave behind his family. To leave behind his culture. Imagine that. Abraham, you don't have to leave this pagan culture. You've got to leave your family behind. How hard would that have been? Verse 1 says, And your kindred in your father's house. So like Abraham, brothers and sisters, your family, I understand this isn't the situation for everyone, but your family has shaped you and molded you. What you think, what you believe, what you practice, now what you do on Christmas Day has been shaped and formed by your family. Do you think it wasn't so with Abraham? So Abraham, why is he a moon worshiper? Why is he a moon worshiper? Because this is what his father would have called him. So Abraham, and God has got to call Abraham and snatch him out of Mesopotamia. Why? Because he's just going to continue in moon worship. Imagine if God would have called Abraham and said, Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation, but I'm going to leave you here in Mesopotamia. Imagine how hard that would have been. 
Imagine the struggle and the battle between the worship of the one true God and then this tension he would have had with his family. Just come to this one principle. Just come to this one piece. We're in a constant battle. So God says, no, go. Get out of there and leave it all behind. Brothers and sisters, this is the same reason for which God called Israel and called Joshua to destroy the high places so that there was no opportunity for idol worship. This is the same reason that God called Israel. Do not intermarry. It wasn't racism. It was because if they would have intermarried with other nations, what? They would have adopted the gods of other nations. So God's called Abraham to cut everything off that would jeopardize him worshiping the one true God. What I say to you this morning, church, is God expects no less of you. He expects no less of you, Grace Community Church. Jesus was clear when he was speaking to the Pharisees in John chapter 8. He says this, If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works of Abraham. Are you sons and daughters of Abraham? Then you must do his works, Grace Community Church. And obviously God is not calling you to travel around a desert to some land that you don't even know where it's located. But he is calling you to abandon everything and let go of everything that would keep you from worshiping him. Listen to Matthew 16, 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So understand this. To be a son or a daughter of the living God. It's costly. And it might even cost you your family. This is opposite of the prosperity gospel that we're used to hearing. This is opposite of our uh, comfortable Christianity here in the United States. And most people, all God is for them is just like a, a lucky rabbit or a genie in the bottle, a genie in a bottle. They use God so that they can stay comfortable right where they at, they're at, so that they can cozy up to their idols. Most of you have heard people use this phrase, God, country, family. But the only reason God is at the beginning is not because God's first. It's just because God is the thing which grants them their family and their country. The things that they hold dear. Now, I'm not saying that tomorrow you have to cut off your family. The scriptures are clear. Honor your father and mother. He who does not take care of his own household is worse than, than an un unbeliever. But I guarantee you this, brothers and sisters, at some point, God's going to test your faith. He's going to put something that's going to cause you to have to leave behind or even abandon your own family. He'll test your faith like he did Abraham in Genesis chapter 22. He told Abraham to lay his own son on an altar. This is the same thing that God called John Patton to. He took the gospel to savage cannibals. You know what happened to him? He lost his wife and his little child. Because he was obedient to what God had called him to. And the way that this might play out in your life today might not be like John Patton. might not be like Abraham. But it might be like that report that you have to type up at work. Where they're telling you you have to type he when it's a she. Or she when it's a he. And nobody's going to know. Nobody's going to know what you type on that piece of paper. But John says that Christians walk in the and walk in the truth. And the moment you type the truth on that piece of paper, you be saying the same thing that Abraham said to his son. God's going to provide something. If your last paycheck, you'll be sitting at the table and you're going to look around at your children and say, This is the last paycheck. 
paycheck, but God's going to provide you. This is what we have pictured for us in the life of Abraham. We're called to do his works. Now, God's not simply just calling Abraham out of something. He's not saying, leave this idolatry behind. Leave your sin behind and I'll be a good little boy. No, he's actually calling him into something. He's calling him into riches and blessing. That's the same thing that we have pictured in the gospel. He calls us to leave behind our sin and turn to Christ. So God calls Abraham to a new land. He says, to the land that I will show you. So yes, God is calling him to this land, but for what purpose? So that Abraham can worship God. So this is a call away from the worship of idols and a call into, a call into, an invitation into relationship with the one true God. And we see that this is the pattern of Abraham's life. He's now no longer a moon worshiper, a worshiper of God. It's also a call from the emptiness of this world into the blessing of God. Abraham's former gods, this moon god, didn't have ears, couldn't hear Abraham. So imagine you've gone your whole life praying to these gods. And they can't even hear. And then the one true God out of nowhere builds himself to you and gives you the greatest blessing that anyone could ever offer. What would you do? Of course you would respond. You'd have to be a, a fool not to respond. But this is exactly what God does in our life. He snatches us out of our blindness, out of this world, and all, our, all the things that we were chasing in this world, all the gods that we had in this life, they couldn't offer what we were looking for. They couldn't deliver anything. But the one true God can deliver everything in Christ Jesus to us. So only a, a fool would reject such a call, such salvation. Matthew 13, 44 says this, The kingdom of God is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that, that field. Brothers and sisters, there's a lot of things that we can see about our own salvation into the life of Abraham. But this, it simply pictures how God has called you out of darkness into light. He's called you out of the deadness of your sin and into the riches that are in Jesus Christ. So now we're going to consider the promises. This is our second point this morning. The promises that God makes to Abraham. A lot of people will try to say there's seven promises, but I think the more important thing to see is that all these promises are working together towards one thing. So we're going to walk through and consider each of these promises. First, God promises Abraham to become a great nation in the land of Canaan. So we're kind of pumping two of these promises together. Look at the end of verse 1 and verse 2. It says, To the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. So essentially the rest of the Old Testament is about these two promises. This is why understanding Abraham is so important for you. To understand the story of the whole Bible. The rest of the Old Testament is about the fulfillment of these two promises. The rest of the story of Abraham until Exodus demonstrates God's faithfulness to make Abraham into a great nation. Then from Exodus to Joshua, we see God's faithfulness to bring this nation into the land of promise to Abraham. And then from Judges until the arrival of Jesus, all deals with God's faithfulness to preserve Abraham's descendants and assure that they inhabit the land. Why? So that the blessing of Abraham, Jesus the Messiah, would come to the world. 
And so what we need to understand is that all these promises that we're about to consider, the rest of the promises that are, that are given, we're going to walk with, they all revolve around the Abrahamic blessing, which is Jesus Christ. It's the whole point of the blessing, is to bring Christ into this world. So the second promise here is God promises to just bless Abraham. He just flat out says that. He says, I will bless you. I will bless you. But what does he mean by blessing? He means a lot of things with the word bless. Right? So we actually see Abraham, God bless Abraham in several ways. And before we get into this, I, I want you to understand that I think every promise here, it has an immediate application to Abraham and to Israel, to his descendants, but it also has a true and better application. There is an immediate temporal application to Abraham and to Israel, but there are true and better applications and realities of these promises through Christ. And so you need to understand that every one of these blessings has a dual nature to it. But we need to understand both rightly. So first, we want to understand these temporal blessings that God gave Abraham when he says, to bless you. How did God bless Abraham? One, God blessed Abraham with his presence <coughs> and his favor. And Bilamek said to Abraham, God is with you and all or is with you and in all you do. So it sounds like Abraham's blessing if God is with you in everything you do. Secondly, God blessed Abraham with an obedient wife who submitted to him even when Abraham was overcome by the fear of man rather than fearing God. Abraham did not deserve that bad boy. Abraham deserved judgment. He would be a poor husband. But God blessed him with a good woman who stood behind him and submitted to him when he did not deserve it. We also see that God blesses Abraham with favor of great men such as Pharaoh, Melchizedek, and Ephraim the Hittite. He blesses him with favor in the presence of kings. Fourth, Abraham was blessed with victory and power. And lastly, we see that the scriptures explicitly state that Abraham was rich. He was blessed because he had things. Chapter 13, verse 1 says, Abraham was very rich in livestock and gold. We understand that God's not promised to give us riches. He's not promised to give us everything we want or think that we need in this life. But I want to encourage you this morning to form a theology of blessing. What does the scripture say about blessing? And we all not to be scared of that. We're all scared of that life because we're used to the prosperity gospel where these preachers get up here and they start screaming about how everyone can receive God's blessing. And then to walk in obedience is to walk in blessing. And then we run away only to believe the Christian is only to suffer all the time. And that is true. You will suffer persecution as a Christian. But I encourage you to deeply think about what the scriptures say about blessing because Christ himself is a blessing to us. Now, is this it? Are these the only ways in which God promised to bless Abraham? And I would say absolutely not. What is the true blessing of Abraham? What's the true and better blessing here? The true blessing of Abraham is salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. You might say, I don't see Christ there in the text. I'm about to show you. Rather than assuming 
that this, this blessing is actually referring to Jesus Christ, let's look at what the Apostle Paul said. We're going to look at two passages or two verses from Galatians and one from John chapter 8. So Galatians 3.16 says this, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. So this is referring to not only the promises here in chapter 12, but the promises of all the Abrahamic covenant, which is going to further develop in this story. Just about all these promises in our passage. They were made not only to Abraham, but to his offspring. It says this. It does not say offsprings referring to many, plural, aka his physical descendants, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. That blessing, when God says, I will bless you, he's talking about Jesus Christ. He's going to bless Abraham with saving faith in Christ. Listen to Galatians 3 8. It says this And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Isn't that more clear? That this, that this blessing is the Lord Jesus Christ, and that Abraham knew the Lord Jesus Christ through faith in the gospel? Does that not encourage you that this has been the plan to save men since the beginning? Listen to John 8, 56. Jesus said, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it as well. He knew the Lord Jesus Christ. The next promise, God says that he will make Abraham's name great. Look at verse 3. He says, and make your name great. Abraham's name did become great, brothers and sisters. There's a little jingle that we all know. Father Abraham had many sons. Right? His, his name is famous in the world. Many say that Abraham's name means exalted father, father of the multitudes, or even great father. This is what the reason for which God changes his name in Genesis 17, 5. It says, no longer shall you be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you a father of the multitude, multitude of nations. When you read the conversations between Jesus and the Pharisees, it's pretty clear. They thought much of Abraham. God even identifies himself as the God of who? The God of Abraham. His name has become great. But we need to ask the question, why? Why does God want to make Abraham so great? Is there already something great about Abraham? Is this going to give God more clout? Does God need Abraham? We all know the answer is no, but I want to ask the question, this question, why? Why would God choose Abraham? Because Abraham is weak. God chose the weakness of Abraham, not Abraham himself. The one thing that Abraham needed in order to become a great nation, he could not deliver a son. He had a barren wife. So how could Abraham be the father of a multitude? He doesn't even have a son. Hebrews 11, 12 actually says, Abraham was good, eyes dead. That means good for nothing. Or in the South, we'd say that dog can't hunt. Abraham was worthless. And this is the pattern of Scripture. God chooses men like Gideon. And we can just go through the list. 
God chooses the weak things in the world to shame the wise, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians. So, if you're weak today, I want to encourage you. And you know, you actually might be weak. You might say, Joe, I don't have any talents or skills. I'm not good at anything. That might be true. You know, I'm not very smart. That might be true, too. Well, good. If you have nothing to offer to God, then you are perfect for God to use. I'm trying to make comments in your life, but, but seriously, if you really feel that way, be encouraged. God uses weak vessels. That is the glory of my shine through. So why does God choose we call Abraham? Because through weakness, God displays his own greatness and glory. And I think that Moses is actually intentional to show us this in this passage, okay? I think what Moses is doing here, he does it in many places in Genesis. He'll take two Hebrew words and he'll place them in different places in, in different places in Genesis. And his intention is for you, we don't read Hebrew, but for his audience to connect two stories based upon these two words. And the word here for name, he says, Abraham, I will make your name great. The word here is sin, which is the Hebrew word for shem. Why on earth would God, or why on earth would Moses name God, but this word here, he says, I will make your sin, or your shem, great in place of name. It's because Abraham is a descendant of shem. There were already promises and prophecies made about the seed of the woman who would come through Shem, and now it's going to come through Abraham. But we also find this word in Genesis 11 4, in the account of the Tower of God. I'm going to read this verse. It says, Then they said, Come, let us build, for our, build ourselves a city and a tower with its tops in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. Let us make a Shem. For ourselves. Same word right here. So what is Nimrod saying? I despise the seed of the world. I despise God's plan, just like Psalm 2 when the nation created. God has said, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, and mankind has just flat out said, no. In fact, we're going to build a heaven up to your throne, God. We're going to rip you off of it. What's God do? No, you're not. In, in chapter 11, it just says in a smart, smart out, sarcastic way that God comes down. God had to come down to see their small power. And then he scatters mankind, and there's the nations right there. The nations exist because of the judgment of God over Nimrod. Can you believe that? And then God takes what they said and says it to Abraham. He makes this promise to Abraham. Abraham, I'm going to make your name great. Make your shin great. Why? Because God showed all the earth. You can resist my will, but I will complete it. It sounds harsh, but it's actually mercy. God doesn't have to save the nations that he just chose. He doesn't have to save them. Now, through Abraham, all the nations will be blessed. So God is simply communicating this. No one is going to thwart his plan, and he himself will accomplish his purpose in will, in the earth. And that's actually merciful to us. The next blessing we see is to make Abraham the means of blessing for others. He promises to make Abraham the means of blessing for others. This is at the end of 2 and verse 3. It says, so that you will be a blessing. 
Abraham, I'm not only going to bless you, but you're going to be the means for blessing. He says, I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And so while Abraham is the means of God's blessing to others, we must understand that one's relationship with Abraham determines if he is a recipient or not of the blessing. I'll say that again to Paul. Abraham's is the, is the means of blessing. But a person's relationship to Abraham is the thing which determines whether you receive the blessing or not. And ultimately, one's relationship to Jesus Christ is what determines whether you receive this blessing. I'll remind you, all these promises have dual natures. They have immediate application in the life of Abraham, and they have true and better realities that are spiritual realities. So, the immediate application, why is God telling Abraham these things? Well, God's calling Abraham to leave everything behind, this would include his securities, his support systems. He's telling him to go to a place that he doesn't even know. Abraham doesn't have a map. Abraham doesn't have a Bible. He doesn't know one story about God's faithfulness. And God doesn't have to prove that to him. It doesn't change the character of God. But God in his kindness says, Abraham, you're going to bless others. And as you travel on this journey, I'm going to bless those who bless you and those who curse you. And God has given him almost a security blanket. And this is exactly what God does in his life and in, in the life of his descendants. And the reason is because God's going to fulfill his promises. God is going to fulfill his promises. But there is a spiritual intruding into his promise. And we've established that the blessing of Abraham is Christ. So if the, so if the true blessing of Abraham is Christ, it would follow logically that one's relationship to Jesus Christ determines if he's a recipient of the Abrahamic blessing or cursed by God. Your relationship to Jesus Christ determines if you are going to be blessed by Abraham or cursed by God. The blessing is what the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that gospel is preached throughout the earth today. And those who believe and trust in that gospel are blessed along with Abraham. I'll read Galatians 3 7. It says, Know then that it's those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Galatians 3 29 says this, And if you are Christ's, then you are the off, or you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. These promises here. So, the church are the sons of Abraham. The church is the true and better Israel. Paul in Galatians actually says that the church is the Israel of God. So, these blessings, they're, they're all ours. The Abrahamic blessings are our brothers and sisters, depending on how we respond to Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to see that the, the third thing, or the third thing that we need to see from this is they are two responses to Abraham. There's two postures towards Abraham. Which means there's only two postures towards Jesus Christ. You either bless him, or you dishonor him. So this verse gives everybody in this room, I don't, I don't know if this is your first time here this morning, this is the first time you've ever heard a sermon from the Bible or anything about Jesus Christ, but I want you to know this morning, no one is neutral before the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And, and this promise to Abraham shows us that clearly. You will either worship God or you reject him. There's no neutral ground. You either bless Abraham or you dishonor Abraham. And the scriptures are full of this, full of clarity on this. There's two doors. There's two ways. There's two trees. Psalm 1 talks about the wicked and the righteous. There's no neutral ground. So if you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, I don't want you to leave thinking that you are neutral to him, that you are indifferent. If you are indifferent, that is equal to dishonoring his name, rejecting his kindness, and being like Nimrod and rebellion against him. But he invites you to come to him and partake in the Abrahamic blessing. Now, before we move forward, I want to speak to the children this morning. In Israel, so children, kids, boys and girls, or young men, young women, you're still in your, your parents' home, listen to me for a moment. In Israel, the Israelites, they put confidence in these promises. They put confidence in their father, Abraham. And Jesus actually told the Israelites, the boys and girls, that they didn't know God, that they didn't have salvation just because Abraham was their father. But they had to have faith like Abraham and trust in Jesus, the one who came from Abraham. So I want to say to you this morning, children, do not trust in the fact that your daddy teaches you the Bible, your mommy helps you memorize Bible verses. Do not think that just because your mommy and daddy, your mother and father are Christians, you have a seat at God's table. Do not think that you automatically get into heaven because of who your parents are. Think on these things. You too, children. You have to make that choice. You either have to bless Abraham or you have to dishonor him. That is determined with you. So, up until this point, brothers and sisters, what we've seen in the life of Abraham is grace upon grace. God snatches this moon worshiper out of the Lord and then gives him all these blessings. He's Snatched us out of darkness and given us all the riches that are in Christ Jesus. But we need to ask the question, all for what? What is God's ultimate purpose in showing Abraham grace upon grace? And I want to go back to the first question that I asked you. He said the chief in, or we can say purpose of Abraham is what? That the nations glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That is the main purpose of the Abrahamic blessing. Just to restate that or repackage it for you. God called and blessed Abraham so that through him, Jesus Christ, the true Abrahamic blessing might go to the nations. God blesses Abraham because he intended to bless all nations. We see this in verse 3. He says, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now I want to focus in on this phrase in you. So this blessing of God for the nations was in Abraham. It's going to come from or out of Abraham to the entire world. It's going to reach the entire world. But how? Abraham is just one man. How is one man who can't even have a child going to go and conquer the earth? It's because the Abrahamic blessing, the reason which God is going to bless him with a multitude of descendants is why? To bring 
about the true and better blessing. This gives us the purpose of Israel. We now understand what is the purpose of Israel? Why did God make Israel such a great nation? To bring about Christ. To bring Christ to the world. And so that's why I want to emphasize on Israel being the missionary nation of God. Israel is the missionary nation of God because it was first through Israel that Christ was to come to the nations. But before we go forward, and I, I really sometimes hate having to say what things don't mean when we just can't say what they do mean. But there's a lot of confusion all over the world, it's in Peru as well, but specifically in the United States of America about the purpose of Israel. And I would just like to address that for a moment. There is this thing called dispensational theology. Okay? Dispensationalism. And it doesn't teach a false gospel necessarily, these people are brothers, but they teach a great error around the purpose of Israel. And if you don't know what those words mean, just go to Greg's house and I will stay at the meeting about one o'clock and explain all those things. I'm not going to do it this morning. But here's what I want you to understand this type of theology does. And, and I think it may be unintentional. I don't think the intentions are wrong here. So I don't want to be too harsh. But many dispensationalists, intentional or not, they make these promises found here in this passage and other promises made to Abraham more about the nation state of Israel than they do about the Lord Jesus Christ. And maybe you're here to say, Joe, I disagree with you. Well, that's fine. You can disagree with me. But don't replace Jesus for the nation state of Israel is all I'm asking of you. Rather than emphasizing that Israel is to bless the nations, they actually take Israel's purpose and just Look it up upside down instead. They say the nations need to bless Israel. They say the purpose of the United States is what? To bless Israel. If we don't bless Israel, we won't be blessed as a great nation. You may say, I've never heard of this, but it's very common. Train of thought. I want to quote for you David Jeremiah, who is a very influential pastor here in the United States. And here's what he Says He says, what I'm about to say is a dramatic statement, but not an overstatement. I believe America's future and any nation's future depends in large part on one simple factor, our relationship to the tiny nation of Israel. Also in reference to Genesis 12.3, he states this, I'm an unapologetic believer in the promises God has laid out in Scripture and God has a perfect track record of keeping his promises. So David Jeremiah is saying these promises are about the nation state of Israel that they remain today. And, and, and they're free to disagree. But if it, if it becomes offensive for the Lord Jesus Christ, and it becomes an issue when we can't see that these promises are about Christ to the nations, not the nations to Israel. So Israel is the missionary nation of God. Israel is the means by which God is going to take this blessing to the nations. God's primary purpose for Israel was to bring healing to the nations, bring salvation to the end of the earth. Israel's purpose was to deliver the world, to deliver to the world the son of David, the son of Abraham, who would subdue and conquer all his enemies, through the preaching of the gospel, through the free offer of the gospel, or we could say the free offer of the Abrahamic blessing. 
And so a lot of us might think that the first missionary was Paul, some have said Philip, some have said it's the, the two women who left the tomb, or the demoniac at the beginning of Mark. People say that those were the first missionaries. The brothers and sisters, Israel was the first missionary. Now, why is this so important? You might say, Joe, why do you want to emphasize that Israel was a missionary nation? Why is this so important? And first, I think it just helps us to see God's eternal plan. That God's eternal plan doesn't begin in 1928. It begins before the foundation of the world. And this also helps us to see, brothers and sisters, that missions, it, it doesn't begin in the Old Testament. God's plan to save the ends of the earth, it doesn't begin in the Old Testament, I mean in the New Testament, sorry. It begins in the Old Testament. It doesn't begin in Matthew 28, but it actually begins here in Genesis 12. Some men have said that Genesis 12 is the Great Commission of the Old Testament. And so what I want to do now is I want to show you these things from the Scriptures. I want you to show, this, show you that this is utterly clear. This is, excuse me, God's purpose for Israel to take Christ to the nations, this missionary nation. First, we see this in Psalm chapter 2. And I start from John, Psalm chapter 2 to show you this, that, well, I specifically want you to see two things when we look at some of these verses. I want you to see that, that, that the Old Testament, it has a strong witness to the missionary purpose of Israel. And I want you to even see that Israel was aware of it. It wasn't like this hidden purpose that Israel didn't know about. Israel was aware of it. So we start with Psalm 2 because we want to see this as a part of God's eternal plan. Psalm 2, 7 and 8 says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. So the mode of commissions, it pre-exists Israel. It pre-exists the promises made to Abraham. It begins in this Covenant redemption. It's known as the covenant redemption. It's a conversation between the Father and the Son that is a part of God's eternal decree before all things begin. Listen to Matthew 23:15. It shows us Israel's awareness. Israel's awareness of this missionary purpose they have. Matthew 23:15 says this: What do you scribes and Pharisees, you but you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a son or a child of hell as yourselves. Where on earth does a Jew get the idea to take truths from his scriptures, truths from his God, and cross land and sea and share with the Gentile? I thought that the Jews hated the Gentile, right? And they did. That's clear. But where did you get this idea? And I'm saying to you, it's because it was clear. They knew that, this, that there was, their purpose was that something or someone would come from them to the nations, even if this man's intention was wrong. He was preaching a false gospel. I want to show you this in light of the division of the Hebrew Scriptures. The, the Jews divided their Old Testament Bible to the law, the Psalms and writings, and the prophets. So I want to show you that the scriptures are clear on this missionary purpose first in the law. 
Now, Genesis 12 through 35, I think this would have been sufficient in itself to make a Jew aware of his purpose, aware of Israel's purpose, that the promises of the Abrahamic blessing, the Abrahamic covenant, that were repeated over and over, they just would have known. But God, he actually, in Exodus 19, 4 through 6, makes it really clear to Israel himself. This is where the Mosaic covenant happens. And when God makes this covenant, he actually tells them why he's making a covenant with them. He tells them their purpose here. Listen to Exodus 19, 4 through 6. It says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. Peter actually quotes this in the New Testament, explaining what our purposes as the church. So Israel, they already they had already heard about or what God said to Pharaoh. Remember, God told Pharaoh what his purpose was. It was so that the nation, so that the earth would know his greatness, would know his name. And then in light of this deliverance, in light of their salvation, God states to Israel their missionary purpose. They're one nation set apart from all nations in order to be a nation of priests. To be ministers of the holy things of God, not only for themselves, but to the nations. So time in history past, generation after generation, hear their fathers and grandfathers teach them the stories of scripture, feast after feast, they would have recounted the promise of the patriarchs, retold, retold the story of Exodus as they celebrated Passover. And those Israelites who truly sought the face of God who truly knew Christ, what do you think they would have thought? I think they would have been fully aware. But I want to prove that to you. That some of these Jews, when they actually wrote the Psalms and Old Testament scriptures, they were aware of it. They knew what their purpose was. So, what, how did they respond? What did they say? We see this in the writings and Psalms. First, I want you, if you want to, you can open your Bible to 2 Chronicles 6.32. And we see Solomon's dedication prayer to the temple. What did Solomon think about all of these things? 2 Chronicles 6.32, it says, Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a far country for the sake of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm, when he comes and prays towards this house, Hear from heaven your dwelling place, and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you, in order that all peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. I think Solomon was aware. I think Solomon knew that God wanted to use Israel to bring Christ to the nations. Psalm 22 says, All the ends of the earth, starting in verse 27, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For 
kingship belongs to the Lord, and He rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before Him shall die all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Brothers and sisters, we could go on and on, especially through the prophets in the Psalms, like Psalm 46, Psalm 72, 86, 96, Psalm 117, almost the entire book of Isaiah. They knew. They understood that someone was coming through them, not just for them. That's what the Jews and Jesus, they missed. They had another idea of what the Messiah was coming to do, and they were wrong. But the ones that knew Jesus Christ, that trusted the ones in Hebrews 11, the Hall of Faith, they knew. They knew who was coming, and generally what he was going to do. Let me see in the prophets. It's going to read you one. Malachi 1 11 says, For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name. And a pure offering, for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. And we could go on with the prophets. But this is clear. They understood that Saul was coming to bring the Abrahamic blessing to all the earth. They knew it. They knew it. Now, if this was Israel's purpose, what does the church have to do with any of us? Why, why is the great commission given to the 11 apostles and then passed along to the church. And I would just like you to consider in Matthew chapter 1, Matthew begins his gospel. He says that Abraham, I mean, sorry, he says Jesus is the son of Abraham and the son of David. And in those two statements and his gospels to the Jews, so a Jew, when he reads that, son of David, son of Abraham, there are so many things that come into mind, specifically the one that's coming. And he's saying, the one I'm about to write about is the son of David, is the son of Abraham. So all these promises and the purpose of Israel would have come to the mind of the Jew when they read, hey, this is the gospel. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, son of David. But what's interesting is how Matthew ends his gospel. In Matthew 28. And what does he do? He calls, but God, or what he shows is that Jesus calls 11, 11 Jews, 11 from Israel, okay? 11 descendants from Abraham, from Judah to go where? To the ends of the earth. And then he calls the Apostle Paul, the Gentiles to who? I mean, the, the Apostle to who? The Gentiles. He's taking Jews, and he's about to send the Abrahamic blessings to the ends of the earth. And those apostles are what? The foundation of the church. And that has been passed to the church. It's no longer like Israel would have said, come and see, come to Jerusalem. But now it's go and tell. Take this blessing to the nations. This gospel began where in Jerusalem. By the end of the act, by the end of the Acts, it's all over the modern world. So brothers and sisters, how do we end this morning? What's the application? We could say, okay, Grace Community Church, you see God's heart beat for the nations. Who's going to go? I could say, are you a sinner? Or are you a goer? But that's not how we're going to apply this morning. Perhaps we're going to use 
Psalm 67's application. Open the scriptures with me to Psalm 67. This psalm is all about the nations and it's a missionary psalm. So I want to make three points of application. The first is, is the heart of this psalm, we're going to read portions of it in a moment, is the heart of this psalm still the burning flame, still a burning flame in the heart of this church? So what's the heart of this psalm? Look at verses 3 through 5. This, this is the heart of Psalm 67. It says, let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. That's the heart of this song, that all nations would worship God, would glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Because it says, is that the heart of this church? Don't answer the question, do I sin or do I go? Do you burn for that? Brothers and sisters, six years ago you sent me out. And I don't know how things are now, I'm not here. But there was a zeal for that. I remember the 4.30 a.m. prayer meetings in Clinton. And I remember what we prayed about. We, we prayed about things that were crazy, about Leaders of North Korea coming to Christ. And many other things. And so I'm just saying, I know that's been the heart of this church. And I don't know if it still is. But I want to exhort you to it. Do not lose that. It doesn't mean tomorrow you have to send out 20 missionaries. It doesn't mean that. But do not lose that passion and zeal that you once had or still have. Second, Second point of application is that Grace Community Church and its missionaries would seek the blessing of God. We all know that unless the Lord build the house, they can labor, labor in vain. And you, church, labor with us, the Chavez, and other missionaries. But we must seek the blessing of God together. And that we find in verse 1 and 2. It says, May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his that your way may be known on the earth, your saving power among all nations. So you see this psalm is calling upon God. God bless us. And the end is what? That the nations will be blessed. But it's not the cry of our heart. Are we seeking the face of God, saying, God, I don't know who goes, I don't know who stays, I don't even know what we should do yet, but God, would you please bless us? Please shine your face upon us. Pour your spirit out on us that your name will be made great in all the earth, in Peru, and where we have other missionaries. And the third point application is that Grace Community Church and its missionaries would trust the surety of God's promise. That we would trust the surety of God's promise. Now, this song begins and ends with the blessing of God, talking about the blessing of God, but the language changed. It goes from a prayer in calling upon God's blessing, asking God to bless them, to stating the surety that God will bless them. He's sure of it, confident in this. Look at verses 6 and 7. It says, The earth has yielded increase. 
God, our God, shall bless us. Shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. So he's praying to God that God will bless him. He's praying in faith. And he's trusting that God will bless him. Because this psalmist has to know. He has to know the faithfulness of God. And he has to know the promises made to Abraham. And he has to know what God said to Abraham in 12.3 when God says this to Abraham. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God's making a promise. He's going to keep it. So brothers and sisters, let us trust the sure of his promises as we continue in this partnership in Peru. We will pray with you. Our Father in heaven, we are so significantly blessed, not just because you are our good Father who provides our daily bread and meets our needs. I mean, passed one day in Peru without food. And you were good for that. You have blessed us with that. More than that, we are, we are blessed with and each and every one of us that trust in you, trust in your son, are blessed like Abraham. We thank you, God. We, we ask you and we thank you that you would bless us and bless this partnership. I pray that you would bless Grace Community Church and you would bless all of us missionaries. Help us to seek your face and trust and assure you that the promise that you made. And we pray these things in Christ's name to the glory of his name.